Uh, I'll be preaching to you from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, so if you'd turn there in your Bibles. The title of the sermon is The God of Peace, and naturally around this time of year, we hear a lot about peace. It's Christmas time, and of course this is the time when we celebrate Christ's birth. We had the Advent reading earlier, and we know that the angels sang, and that Luke records that the heavenly hosts said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And for many people, they know this first. Uh, they've maybe gone to a Christmas Eve service where they've heard it, or there's some Christmas decoration that they have that it's inscripted on, or they've seen the Charlie Brown special at Christmas time, and so they've heard these verses, but it seems that they seem to block out the first half of the verse that says, glory to God in the highest, and maybe they, they take away with them Maybe they come and take away with them uh, a little bit of the goodwill toward men. But especially they like to hear peace on earth. This is the thing that they want to hear at this time. And it's almost as if the whole ethos of America changes at this time. And a a mood of sentimentality and tranquility sets in. Everybody wants to get along. And more than any other time of the year, more than Thanksgiving when we're celebrating what God has given us, or even at New Year's when we're making our resolutions, at Christmas time, everybody wants to get along. And it could be that because of the times that we'll be spending with our families and friends, that we're thinking about uh, getting along with them. It could be the memories that we have as children, the memories of opening presents on Christmas morning or drinking hot cocoa or eating homemade cookies, all these things uh, are very nice and we have joyful memories about them, but everybody wants to get along in this time. And it's especially a time when we'd like for even war to stop. I can't imagine the effect that John Lennon's Happy Xmas War is Over had on the, na- uh, the attitudes of our nation. I wasn't around at that time when that song came out, but I was around and was a young boy for the Gulf War. And I remember that they would have cameos of the soldiers from Desert Storm saying, Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas. And it seemed that even at that time, war was dying down. And that our nation, whether you want to call it a Christian nation or post-Christian nation, and another nation that was anti-Christian, were both ceasing to, to go about their warfare. And this could have been because of the press coverage. Maybe they weren't covering as much as but everybody at Christmas time wants to set aside our differences so that we can have this so-called peace. Now, it is true that Jesus does bring peace. We know that it's said of him that he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. No one will have peace without Christ. And it's true that Jesus promised peace and he will give it but he says he won't give it as the world gives it. And so my aim this morning is for us to know the God of peace, especially as we'll be spending time with family and friends who might look to artificial peace and worldly peace. So please read along with me from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. So as you can see, peace is woven throughout this passage in a number of different ways. You've got the peace that Paul is trying to make at the beginning in the relationships there. You see that he begins to help the Philippians make peace in light of their difficult circumstances. He calls them to prayer in God. You can see that at the end, he calls them to peace in their pursuits and that the God of peace will be with them. Well, let's take a look at this first uh, situation in which peace is necessary. So these two women in the church... And they have a dispute. Iodia and Syntyche are both women of good repute. And here Paul commends them for their service with him side by side in the gospel. Now these might have been among the women who were meeting at the riverside when there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. And Paul came and, and preached the gospel and started a church there. Now, it might seem that because Paul is using a public letter to address these two women, that there's nothing short of a catfight between them. But it's actually more likely that because of the good reputation they had, that it's only a minor disagreement between them. Paul's not an idiot. He doesn't uh, look at the women in the church and think that the disagreements among them won't cause great uh, difficulties within the church as a whole. And so he addresses them. And we don't know the nature of the struggle between them. And that's not what's important. It's not mentioned in the letter. But what we do see here is Paul's entreaty for peace. Now what the Apostle Paul doesn't do is to tell both of them and give them both what they want. He doesn't satisfy both of them to quiet them down just so that their bickering will stop. Okay, so surely you've been around a Christmas tree at some point, and everybody's opening gifts, and there's some children sitting around, and all of a sudden, uh, Jessica grabs a present from underneath the tree, and she begins opening it, and her eyes brighten, she's getting excited, it's the blanket that she's wanted uh, for so long. And then there's Johnny, and he wanted a blanket too, and he begins to look over and, and sees the blanket, and, and you can see it coming, and all of a sudden he starts whining, but I want one too. And his hand is reaching for Jessica's hair and the other hand for the blanket. And mother chimes in, no, wait, wait, it's okay, Johnny. I assure you there's a blanket underneath the tree for you two. It'll be okay. But this isn't the, Paul, uh, the peace that Paul is trying to make. He's not giving them both what they want so that they'll agree. And... He's not making pragmatic peace so there won't be this, any fighting or name-calling. It's godly peace that has harmony in the Lord. And so the nature of the peace 
is to agree to humble ourselves before Christ and one another. Paul pleads earlier to the Philippians, he says, Be of the same mind and have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. He goes on, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so it must always be the case that in matters of relationships, that the furthering of God's kingdom and the work of the church, which Paul has commended both of these women for, that that be the primary concerns of God's people. We cannot have as our attitude that our convictions or our principles are above the unity of the church. There may, may not be any opinions that come before peace and agreement in Christ. But it's, our, it's always our temptation to do this. It's always our temptation to put our differences first and the true foundational doctrines of the faith second. And so, uh, to illustrate how this is true, I think if we look at our relationships with unbelievers, we can see how we do put aside the primary matters of importance for the secondary things. And likely that happens and takes place in our families. How many of you will be seeing family or friends over uh, the next couple weeks? Okay, so pretty much everybody. And so it's always easy for us to spend time with family and to know our families and to want to get along with our families and in that time put aside Christ. We know that we have to spend time with them, and so we're tempted to have peace with them as opposed to peace with God. And so we'd rather dust off the altar of our family crest than put it to destruction for the worship of God. And we do this in many ways. It's likely that you'll be spending time with your, uh, your brothers or your sisters or mother or father, and you know their idols. And you know their idols because you've had to turn from them yourself. If you followed Christ, even in some Christian families, there are things that come before Christ often. And so those are the things that you have to turn to. And so you know those idols because God has dealt with those in your life as well. And so each family has uh, what's called uh, party spirits, right? A party spirit is uh, the fact that they're Democrats and they take great pride in that. Maybe it's not being a Democrat uh, maybe it's being hardworking. Maybe families get along because they're all Colts fans and they can all sit around and watch the game and cheer for the Colts. It could be that they're from a particular state or city and you always know that because they're always bringing up how great that town is or how great that place is. And so a lot of times these idolatries can be something that's outside of them. Maybe something that they join, like a political party or something that they root for, like a sports team. But often what happens at Christmas time is that the self-righteous idols of the family, the things that the family takes pride in, become more and more evident. Okay, imagine an Italian family sitting around, and they're talking about how mama's cooking is the best, how they have the best hair, and how, in fact, they're just, each one of them is the best. <laughs> and you understand that, that they take pride in their excellence, and it might seem silly to talk about them, but each of our families has these things that they take pride in. And so what are the things that your family gathers around to make peace? 
what are the things that your family gathers around so that everyone will agree and get along? And some of you uh, might not come from families that, that get along really well around these things and are very cohesive, but uh, it might be that they uh, are somewhat dysfunctional and they fight a lot, and in fact there seems that to be more fighting than there is unity. And so you could say that, well, they, they fight a lot. I, I'd like to have a family to have peace, even if it was around things that, that weren't, uh, weren't godly. But it's probably the case that you need to recognize that family puts its hope in, in arrogance or being contentious. And so it's likely you deal with those things too. And so it would be easy for you to go home as a Christian and think, oh, well, I know the truth, and I know that they have all these worldly opinions. I know that Jesus is the truth, and so I should contend with them, and I should set them straight. And then you end up being just as contentious as they are. But Paul says here, let your reasonableness be known to all. And so he means that you would have a sound faith, that you wouldn't waver, and that you would stand firm both in your equanimity and in conviction. He certainly doesn't think that each of us should be reasonable by our own standards, but that we should be reasonable as to our faith. So it's often the case that the principles and the opinions we have, the ones that we then bring into our church, are rooted in our family idols, the things that we make uh, of bigger priority than the unity of the church or true doctrine. Those things might be the exaltation of excellence, that a family, each member needs to excel in something. And that excellence is what should drive a family and pursuits of fame and glory in those things. It could be uh, superiority of academic education, that your family is to excel and go further and further in education. And I don't know what it is for your family, but I'm sure you have it. I see a whole row of bakers here, and I'm sure each of them could testify to the things that the bakers are proud about. And so when we're here in the body of believers, we have to fight to make sure that these idols from our homes don't come into the church and that we don't make these things the priority. It's easy for us to go home, polish those idols, and then come back and want to bring them back into the church. But we cannot do this, especially in the time when we are reminded of Christ's advent, that Jesus Christ came and he is the one to be worshipped. And so we can't trade the glorious worship of Emmanuel, God with us, for the idolatry at our family altars. This is not peace with God, and it won't make peace with one another. Peace is only found in the Lord. Paul says elsewhere, what fellowship has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? And the answer is nothing. God makes peace with those who make peace with him. And we must make peace with his allies in righteousness. We must make peace with the church. We must take up the war that he has with his enemies. And you can't have peace with your mother if it isn't through the blood of Christ. Jesus said he came not to bring peace but a sword to set a father against his son and a son against his father. We must take God's word is true. We must know that it's true. 
so that we would have peace with God and that we wouldn't turn from Him. And it's true that this time of year can be more warlike than any other time of the year because we're seeing family, we're seeing old friends who we had old habits with and old sins. So this is especially the time of year when everyone's expecting to get along because of the Christmas season. They're expecting peace, peace, and more peace. No fighting, and even if you know that your family is going to fight, you, you still hope that things will work out for the best. Now Paul's writing to the Philippian church, and at the time they were undergoing severe persecution. Paul's actually writing the letter from prison, and many of the believers have been strengthened because he's been in prison. They've seen that he's committed. They've seen that he's resolute. They see that he's not running. And then he's going forward and preaching the gospel. He's writing them from jail. And in fact, many of them have become more bold to speak the word because of his imprisonment. And so it's in these circumstances that he commands them to rejoice. He says, rejoice, rejoice always. And so when you're going home or you're going to work and you're thinking about the realities of you having to preach the gospel in those places, you have to to put Christ first, you have to rejoice in those circumstances. And I know that this is difficult. I know it's difficult to rejoice in going forward in difficult things. But this was the case of the Philippian church, and it is the admonition that Paul gives to the Philippians. I know that uh, um, this time can be difficult. I uh, was on the phone with my sister a few weeks ago, and she is out in Denver. My parents live in northwest Indiana, and my parents had promised to go out and see her before the year ended, and they hadn't taken her up on this, um, or they hadn't fulfilled this promise yet, and so she was sharing with me her disappointment on the phone, and so I was thinking, well, I've got a vacation between Christmas and New Year's, maybe I can, you know, I said, well, Jay, maybe mom and dad and I, we can drive out and we can come see you, and she got really excited, so I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll go ahead and, and talk to my mom, and I told her that, and so she was really pleased, and so I spoke with my mom, and she said that she talked to dad and my aunt and uncle who, and their family who were out there. And, uh, with, and I hadn't really thought about the, the consequences of what this would mean for my vacation. And I get a call two days later from my mom. And she tells me that she's already booked a flight home for me to fly from Denver to Chicago on New Year's Eve just in case the weather's bad. So I go from bringing the idea up with mom and dad to having a, a flight back just in case the weather's bad. And so all the, all the marbles are in, and, um, and I hadn't thought about the fact that my break would involve me uh, driving home Christmas Eve from work, uh, going to a Christmas family uh, party where I'll be the only Christian, then leaving early the next morning, driving 16 hours out to Denver with my parents, spending just a few days out there, driving back, and then driving back to Bloomington, and that was going to be my break. But that wasn't the least of it, because the reality is, is that um, my cousins and my, uh, my cousins who are out there are essentially rabid, uh, egalit- well, not even, egal- they're rabid, feminist, liberal humanists. I mean, they're, they're social workers who are committed to their cause, and spending time with my cousins didn't seem like a good idea. Driving out with my parents didn't seem like a good idea. This wasn't going to be a break for me. Because what it would mean was that I would have to die to myself, that I would have to put aside all those idols 
of my mom's family that I would have to preach Christ to my cousins and then I would have to spend this time with my uh, immediate family. And they're not believers and so it's just easier for me to be, be here. It's actually easier for me to have my hardest work week of, of, of whether it's preaching or whether it's uh, pastor's college work, working at the bank, whatever it is, than to go and to spend time, spend that time with family. And so I know it's not easy, but at the same time, it is necessary for us to pick up our cross and to follow Christ. And so each of you have your own situations which you'll be going into. But in each of these things, Paul says, rejoice. Paul says, again, I say it, rejoice. And then he says, in everything, pray. You'll see, and you'll see no reason to rejoice if you don't go to the Lord in prayer, if you don't make these requests known that you have. The situations that you're looking ahead to, if you do not bring those to God in faith, in prayer, it will be turmoil and it will be distress and your soul will have no peace going into those, relation, going into those situations. And yet God promises peace in these situations. He promises to guard your hearts and your minds from unbelief. If you will call him in him, and you will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. You don't have to fret going to see your family, and you don't have to dread going to work and preaching Christ to your co-workers, knowing that in this time you have a great opportunity to do so. And your prayers can't be um, without gratitude. And what I mean by that is that you can't come to God and say, Oh God, I, I know that you've placed me in this situation and I know that you've put me here to be a light for your glory. And all that time you're just complaining about the situation that you have before you. You have to come to God with thanksgiving. You have to say, oh God, if you weren't in heaven and if your son didn't reign, God, all men would perish without your salvation. But Lord, you know that you've come so that sinners would come to you, so that men would be drawn to you. And so I pray that you would do this. I pray that you would give me this message to my family, that you would help prepare me, that you would soften their hearts and that you would go forward in your spirit. And that then in that prayer, you would trust God and that you would have peace with God, knowing that he does work, knowing that he did send his son. And this is the prayer that has thanksgiving. This is the supplication that gives itself, that yields itself to God. And God then establishes you because then you trust in his eternal plan. You trust in his unchanging grace. You don't trust in the circumstances and the difficulties ahead of you. But you trust fully in God and you have peace. And so I know at this point I've exhorted you to have peace with one another and to make true peace with your family members. You know that looking ahead you might have difficulties, but that in prayer you can have peace with God and walk through those times in faith. But then you still have yet to conduct yourselves with them. And so if you know the end of the verse, which is up here, actually verse, if we see verse 8, you know that it says, it lists all these characteristics, and then it says, think about these things. And so most people take this and they go through this list and they see that it's a beautiful, wonderful um, list of characteristics and they try to take out of it that it's some adage for cultural discernment. 
But what should help clarify is that he says, practice these things. What you have learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things. So the things that Paul is asking them to think about should lead to them practicing and imitating Paul. And so what are the things that we're to think about that would lead us to bear fruit in this practice? Well, how about thinking about the blessed, the unity of the church? What about the wonder of God incarnate, that Jesus Christ, God, came into the world as a man? What about the mystery that the Messiah had been hidden for ages and that nobody knew, and then he showed up as a child in a cradle? And so are these things not true and lovely and excellent? And these are the things that Paul taught. These are the things that he then practiced, that he cared for the churches, that he was collecting um, funds for the poor church in Jerusalem so that they would give. And so he's calling all these churches together so that they would have unity and would support one another. And so he's, he's also urging Eodia and Syntyche to agree, to have reconciliation, to have no disagreement between them. And so what are the things that you have learned here? What are the things that you have ser- seen and heard and received here. Have you learned the discipline of being corrected by someone? Have you learned to listen to somebody else? And likely it's in the thing that you're principled about. It's in the things that you differ in opinion about. And somebody comes to you and says, you need to put that aside. And that cannot cause any more disunity. And you can't talk with people about it. And you just need to be quiet. Have you learned that the older men and women of this church look after you and care for you? And that when they come to you, you should give them all ears? Have you learned to love children in this church? Because anywhere you go nowadays, if there are more than two of them, like, it's, it just becomes really uncomfortable because people hate them. And they don't want to be around them. And so many of you have large families and you're going to be going uh, to spend time with other families and you're going to bring your large family with you or your young family with you. And it'll be so tempting for you to allow them to despise you because of it. But it's not only bringing them and taking them with you, loving them, but then correcting them as needed in front of everyone if necessary. So these are the crosses that are before you. These are the things you must bear. And you won't have peace with God without them. And you won't have peace with one another either. There will be terror in your family if you don't discipline and correct. And so as you think about sitting around the dinner table, as you think about spending time uh, with family and eating, it'll be true that you either make peace with them Or you make peace with God and you look ahead to the supper of the Lamb. And you'll leave a look and see and long for that day. Or you'll long to have peace now. And so you have to turn from that. You have to turn from seeking the peace with one another. 
in a way that does not honor God, that does not give God the glory. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so if there's anything you long for, for this Christmas season, as you spend time with family, long to be a peacemaker, making reconciliation in relationships that, you, that are necessary, going to God, praying about the, the difficulties that you may have before you, and then trusting God to conduct yourselves uprightly before them. These are the things that you have to do. Please pray with me.